0: We're nearing the end of this sermon on the Mount. Um, Now, people often ask the question. I've heard this question a lot. I've asked the question a lot. I get this question sometimes. What is the main difference between a sermon and just a lesson? What's the main difference you could say maybe between preaching and just teaching? Is there any difference at all? Well, certainly some of it is just semantics. It's the way we use words. But one answer to that question that I've, I've heard a lot of times, and uh, I think it's pretty helpful. I've heard it from different mentors and, and professors in school and, and uh, preachers that I've, that I still listen to is this, that if teaching is mainly a transfer of information, you're imparting uh, truth from, from you to the hearer, then preaching or a sermon sort of goes beyond just the transfer of information and calls for a verdict. What do I mean by that? Well, if teaching puts the facts out there, if the teaching gives you the what, then preaching calls for the the so what. Now, if you know that and it's true, then the question is, what are you going to do with it? And maybe that's the question we ask when we hear a sermon, a message. And uh, I believe that if a sermon leaves you only with maybe good thoughts about the preacher, then maybe there wasn't a point to it. Or maybe you've missed the point. It could be both things. A person shouldn't be able to say, that was a great sermon, without asking themselves, am I going to follow through with it? Am Am I going to allow that truth to impact me? Well, I'm saying that not particularly about my preaching, although I hope it's true, but I'm saying it because as we near the end of Jesus' sermon, at least one of them, um, the fact of that question is really no different. What's the difference between just teaching, taking in information and a sermon? Now, in a way you could say that we've been seeing calls to action all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. We started with the Beatitudes and the section on the salt and light. Maybe those are kind of the what, Blessed are the poor in spirit. You are the salt of the earth, so to speak. But the rest of the sermon has been a lot of so what? In other words, how are we going to respond? What are we going to do? The Sermon on the Mount has given those so what statements about every part of life. But at the end of the day, all of those details are still part of the sermon. And Jesus saves the big point, really, for the last as he starts to make his conclusion. And I think as we come to the text this morning, we start to see that big point and that conclusion. And we start to ask that question, what is the verdict that has to be drawn? What is the call to action in the Sermon on the Mount? Well, I believe we read it here, beginning in verse number 13, where Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. That is the call. Enter. Enter into the narrow gate. Enter onto the narrow way. We could say enter into the call of the kingdom of heaven. Now in Matthew, before the, the Sermon on the Mount, we only get one glimpse of Jesus preaching, and that was what we saw in Matthew 4, where he said after his baptism and after his temptation in the wilderness, he began to preach saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what he had been preaching. That was his general message. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, earlier sermons, we can go back to those at some point, but we've gone to great lengths talking about the fact that the kingdom was at hand because Christ had come. The kingdom is God's kingship and his kingship was close by. It was at hand because what we will see to be the king himself was close by and at hand. Jesus is the king who calls people to follow him and enter his kingdom and he shows them the way. And truly we could say he makes the way And as we'll see at the end of the sermon, he is the way. We've been told that the kingdom belongs to the poor in spirit. It belongs to the persecuted. We've been told that the kingdom can only be entered with with true righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. We've been told that we must seek God's kingdom first above all else. We've been told to ask and seek and knock and knock and the father will give good gifts to his children. And now Jesus is telling us to enter, enter by the narrow way. All of this, I believe is kingdom teaching and it all comes back, we'll see in this passage to Jesus, what he says and who he is. And the question is, what do we do with it? What do we make of it? When Jesus came on the scene, humanly speaking, the standard was raised immensely. No longer was the highest standard simply to look at the religious leaders of that day. Jesus has said even within this very sermon that their righteousness is not enough. It had to be truer than that. The status quo of the day was not enough. The way had to be narrower than that. As we go through these verses, and we're going to look all the way down through verse 23 today, we'll see that Jesus is essentially saying that there will be many who pretend to be in the kingdom and many who falsely believe to be in the kingdom. But in reality, the way is narrow and the call is to enter by the narrow way. Thinking of this in broader terms, do we say, as we're nearing the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that it's a good sermon. Well, I think if we were sitting there or maybe standing there as Jesus was teaching and we went up to him after he got done and we said, that was a great sermon teacher, he would probably say to us, well, did you listen? What will you do with it? Will you follow me? He knows it's a great sermon. He, he is the one who dictates what the truth is after all. The question is not whether it was a great sermon. The question is what will we do with what he has said? Will we enter by the narrow way? I wanna keep reading in Matthew seven, pick up again uh, in verse 13 and read down to 23. Enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. As we examine this text today, I think that the the big idea, so to speak, is this. A person cannot drift into the kingdom of God. Even religious activity cannot gain you access. Have you entered by the narrow way of Christ? Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we seek to examine these things this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you for this truth. Thank you that you've imparted it and you've preserved it in your word so that we can still read it and study it uh, nearly 2,000 years after it was spoken. Thank you that it is still true that it does not fade away. And because of that, we must come to terms with it. We must ask the questions of ourselves that, Passage asks of the hearers then. Help us to take Jesus' words as true and as serious. Help us to live truly by what gives us life in this passage. Thank you for your grace. May you be glorified this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we'll break this up into a few things. First, That first section, verse 13 and 14, we see the broad way or the narrow way, the broad way or the narrow way. And uh, really in these two verses, it's, it's as if the stakes are, are set and they're, they're somewhat simple. There's a narrow gate that leads to life and a broad gate that leads to destruction. And uh, Jesus, again, as a master teacher, uses illustrations and he he calls the verdict here with a picture And if you have an imagination, it conjures up an image in your mind. And I would picture maybe uh, without much effort, a road that splits, although the main part of the road is a thoroughfare, it's a highway and it it just sort of continues on one way. The crowds on it are large, the flow of traffic is is steady and it's crowded and busy so that you would hardly notice a little exit off to the other side, a little narrow gate with a narrow path, and that way seems less appealing, a little more lonely maybe, it's, it's passed by, maybe it's even missed by most who are on the wide road, but the promise on the sign over that narrow gateway is that it leads to life. And you might ask the question, why haven't (laughs) more taken this road? Is it because they haven't seen it? Are they distracted by the traffic on the broad road? Is it because the path seems more difficult than the broad way? If the path leads to life, then where does the main road lead? Well, in this illustration, Jesus says it leads to destruction. How can that be? How can it be that the road that seemingly most people are on, how is it that the road that seems like it's the way to go, it seems like it's the path to follow, how is it that that one leads to destruction? With this image, then, Jesus is calling for decision. He's calling for us to choose, as it were. Will you stay on the road that leads to destruction, or will you enter by the narrow gate that leads to life. Now, I wanna back up and, and zoom out for a bit because we have really been hunkered right down in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 for quite a while, six or seven months. Um, if you have been counting, we've been in Matthew for 30-something sermons already, and maybe that scares you, So, uh, but we've been here for a while. and. I said when we started into the Sermon on the Mount that we were going to come from a flyover view and get right down, into, right down into the, on the ground level. And we've been there. But I want to back up for just a minute. And I want to see the big context of Jesus' words here. Jesus is at the beginning of his ministry. Just before we started the Sermon on the Mount, he called his 12 apostles, his 12 disciples. And now he's teaching them. And there are others probably who have began to follow him as well. And as we look through the rest of Matthew in in the weeks and the months to come, we will see that during the life of Jesus, these things that he says here in this passage will be proven true. The way of following him will be difficult. It will not be the glamorous way, and it will not be the majority crowd in Israel who follows him. In fact, his ministry is recounted by the Apostle John as this way. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Now, many did, but relatively speaking, when compared with the whole of the people of Israel, the general truth was that his own people did not receive him. Many followed, but in the same comparison, many more did not following Jesus for those years, for those three, three and a half years that he had his earthly ministry would have been a road that led to ridicule and rejection by the ruling class in Israel. It would lead to constant questioning and accusation as we see of Jesus and his disciples multiple times. And ultimately those who followed Jesus would watch as their Lord, as their master was arrested, was tried, was beaten, was crucified and was buried. So when Jesus says the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, he's sort of saying that's the general path. Right then, at the time of Jesus, that was the general path. That's sort of the automatic path. You don't have to do anything or change anything to be on the broad path. Wide and easy in that sense, gives the idea of general and spacious. There's not a lot of opposition, not much to bristle up against. It's sort of like going with the flow, like a fish floating downstream with the current. It's the condition that we sort of come into. We enter into it naturally. Now he contrasts that with the narrow way and the or the narrow gate rather and the hard way. Narrow and hard together, it gives the idea of squeezing like through a crevice, a small opening. If the wide way required no really decision, no change, no action, then the narrow gate requires a real decision because you can't float into it accidentally. You have to make up your mind to enter that way. You won't do it by accident. It's not that the two ways are so similar that you won't have any idea which one you're on. Now, what would that mean for Jesus' hearers then? Well, presumably, I think that the scriptures bear out that at this point, most of his followers, especially his disciples, but even those who had gathered around were exclusively Jewish. They were all Israelites, born into Israelite families and homes. If the Broadway then is the automatic way then that means that it wasn't enough to simply be Israelite by birth. Simply being religious even wasn't enough to be on the narrow way. You remember John the Baptist's sermon to the Pharisees when they told him, we have Abraham as our father and he replied to them, God is able to raise up children for Abraham from the stones. In other words, it wasn't enough to be born into it, so to speak. Now, what does that mean for us then? I think it means that Jesus' words to us are a call to response as well because it's not enough to be, so to speak, born into this. It's not enough to be born into a Christian family or even a church-going family. It's not enough to be born into a moral family or an American family, etc., etc. There must be a call to action to follow Christ. For followers of Jesus, there will be a contrast between what it means to enter by the narrow gate versus simply staying on the broad path. And that is the call here, to enter. The broad path leads, it says, to destruction. Many find that one. It's the normal route, if you're comparing the two. And that is sobering. Now, Jesus doesn't give us hard numbers here. He doesn't give us an exact ratio, but he gives us a principle. And is that the normal route, the general way, is the broad way. But the narrow gate... The narrow way, it says, few find it. And it must be found, so to speak. And where does that lead? It leads to life. It leads to life. Now, what is the narrow gate? Well, more on that later in this sermon, so I won't hold you till next week, but more on that later. For now, Jesus goes on to tell us about the deception that will happen on this road. And he gives another picture from life. First, he gives us this picture of roadways and paths. The next picture he gives us is of fruit. And we see that in verses 15 through 20. Beware, he says, of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every tree that bears, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased trees bear bad fruit. Beware of false prophets. He starts here. That's his warning. He says, enter by the narrow gate. You want to enter the way of life. And he says, then beware of false prophets. What is a false prophet? Well, the literal word here that he uses is is pseudo prophet. It kind of gives us a picture. It's somebody who claims by name to be a prophet, but they're proven to be false. We ask the further question, maybe the more basic question, actually, is what is a prophet at all? Well, a prophet is sometimes one who tells the future by divine revelation, that's often what we think of, and that is the case a lot of times in the Old Testament, as we read the prophetic books, we see predictions about the future, mainly concerning what God is going to do with his people most of the work of a prophet if we've taken the old testament as a guide here is simply to speak on behalf of god to be his mouthpiece so to speak so a false prophet a pseudo prophet is one who claims to be speaking for god but is a counterfeit in reality now why would somebody want to be a counterfeit prophet if there is value in something usually it's counterfeited we see that with with money not maybe not so much anymore but we see it with collectibles and and goods and all kinds of things and if you shop online and you're looking for an expensive thing and you find it for a tenth of the price there's a good chance it's a counterfeit there's a a market in that why would somebody want to be a false prophet well maybe a couple illustrations one is from the book of of jeremiah in jeremiah's record of his prophecy. We fight him having to sort of fight against the messages of the false prophets many times. And one tactic that seems to come up in Jeremiah is that the false prophet would tell you something that you want to hear in order to gain an audience. Jeremiah 6 verses 13 and 14 says this, from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain, and from prophet to priest Everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Now, Jeremiah had a tough job. He was told that he was going to prophesy and preach for years and not really have a good track record. He wasn't going to have many converts. He wasn't going to have many decisions, so to speak, to follow the narrow way. And what was happening is there were these false prophets, even the priests, that says, who were speaking peace, peace, when there was no peace. In the greater context, the message that God had given to Jeremiah was one of repentance because destruction was coming, captivity was coming, but the people wanted to hear peace, but there was no peace. That was the false prophecy. It wasn't even a prediction. It was just a message. Peace, peace, when there is no peace. And what else marked that falsehood? Well, right there in the text of Jeremiah, we said that this is also coupled with being un, or greedy for unjust gain or dishonest gain. There were those claiming to be a spokesman for God, but really it seems they just want, wanted a paycheck of sorts. They wanted to be hired for their prophecy. There are other illustrations of that in the Old Testament as well, but I wanted to bring out another one. It's not in the scripture, but soon after the scriptures were written in the early church, they had to take these words from Jesus in Matthew seven seriously as well, because many false prophets rose up trying to take advantage of this, this new religion, so to speak. People were sensitive to this sort of thing, this revelation. They wanted to know the truth and it was a hotbed for false teachers to enter in. So the early disciples, uh, they wrote things about the false prophets. There's, a, there's an early document called the Didache. It was just a, a teaching manual, so to speak, in the early church, kind of a, a church practice manual. And in that there are really specific warnings about teachers who would come and they would just ask for money. They would wanna stay for a long time and they wouldn't wanna work it seemed like what marked the false teachers in those days was similar to what marked them in Jeremiah's day. They were greedy and they used the title of prophet for unjust gain. Now this is still happening. We see it in our own world. We see it on our own televisions, promises of great things and deliverance if you will only sow a seed by giving money to the preacher on the screen. Missionaries from across Uh, from across the seas tell us stories about how these prophets will go into third world countries where people are suffering and sick and poor, and they will promise great prosperity and healing and wealth if they will give everything they have to the prophet. Jesus knew all about this, of course, which is why he warns that on this road of discipleship, there will be this deception. And how does he describe these false prophets? Well, he says they are wolves in sheep's clothing. Wolves, of course, as you said, that will be ravenous. It's a picture of destruction, of total annihilation, really, of, of just tearing apart the sheep. They seek to get everything they can from the sheep. They entice them with appealing messages, perhaps, peace, peace, when there is no peace, or messages claiming to be from God, and by the time they're proven false, they've made off with their spoils, and they're on to the next victim. Paul confirmed this in his day, too. In the, toward the end of the book of Acts, he was having a, a real heartfelt conversation with the elders from the church in Ephesus, and he told them this. He said, I know... He was there for several years. He said, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Paul really resonates with what Jesus said, and he also adds a warning. He says, sometimes these wolves will come from among you. This is of course all part of the deception which is Satan's favorite tool after all he is the liar the father of lies and these false prophets whether directly or indirectly are serving the purposes of his lies and his deception Now there are litmus tests there are tests in the Old Testament for prophets about whether their prophecies come true and that kind of thing there are there are Sentences for false prophets that say they should be stoned in the Old Testament theocratic way of living. But Jesus also gives a litmus test here. It's pretty simple. It's the test of fruit. He says, you will recognize them, verse 16, by their fruits. You will recognize them by their fruits. True disciples bear the fruits of righteousness. And the same must be true of these teachers as well you will know them by their fruit. The New Testament in many places goes on to warn about the bad fruit of these false teachers, things like division, greed, destruction of faith, immorality, false doctrine. A message that sounds good or even sounds true is not a reason necessarily to listen to a teacher. Jesus says you'll know them by their fruit. And he uses this great agricultural picture a picture that probably his hearers would have been more familiar than us although in a rural area we see this as well he says uh, will a uh, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or are figs gathered from thistles grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes but grapevines and figs do not come from thistles but from fig trees a good uh, a good, tree, a good plant produces good fruit and a bad tree produces bad fruit. This is one of the areas where we're called to use discernment. Now we learned a few weeks ago that we're not to judge our brothers and sisters by the way of condemnation or by, by unjust judgment, but we are, as we saw in that same passage, to use discernment. And this is one of those places where we do that. We are to guard carefully and be very discerning about our teachers. There's a reason why James, the half brother of the Lord Jesus said in James 3.1, that not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Deception is a very real tool of the enemy and we must watch carefully that we don't fall into it. The fruits show the genuineness of a teacher. It's not just the words that come out of his mouth. It's the fruit of his life as well. And those who are false teachers will be repaid for their deception by the Lord. 2 Peter 2 verse 1 says this. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them bringing upon them swift destruction. Ultimately, these false prophets, they deny the Lord. They claim to be his mouthpiece. They claim to be his spokesman, but they deny him. And their end is the same as the broad way that we've already read about in verse 13 and 14. It is destruction. Here in 2 Peter, it's the image, or sorry, in Jesus' words, it's the image of fire. We often see in scripture, for God's judgment. And Jesus warns of this destruction, both for those on the broad way and also for the false prophets who seek to keep people and pull them into that broad way. So enter, Jesus says, by the narrow gate, as we started off, because the broad way leads to destruction and there is much, much deception to be found. The false prophets were those who were deceiving others. But as we continue to read on, we see that there's also a warning against self-deception as well. And they often go hand in hand. Deception starts with believing a lie. Self-deception continues when you seek to uphold that lie at all costs, even when the truth points to another conclusion. And the sad reality is that there will be those who are surprised at their own deception. That's a dangerous state, but that's why Jesus warns against it. It leads us to verse 21. Here, Jesus continues his theme of of entering. He started that in chapter 5 where he told of entering the kingdom of heaven only if your righteousness exceeded the scribes and Pharisees. He mentioned it in verse number 8 of this chapter where we are told to knock and it will be opened. He continued in verse 13 as we read today uh, where we are told to enter by the narrow gate. And now he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, this is a form of deception, this time self-deception. There will be those who, who claim to be in the kingdom falsely, and there also will be those who are deceived into thinking they are on the narrow way when in fact they have missed it. Many will be surprised, it seems. What is the contrast? Well, it's a contrast of empty profession versus, as Jesus says, those who do the will of the Father. What do they say? They say, Lord, Lord. Well, Paul tells us in Philippians that one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And that's true. On that day, we call it the day of the Lord or the judgment day. Everyone will have to admit they will come to terms with the fact that Jesus is Lord. But on that day, that admission itself will not gain entrance into Christ's kingdom. Think of it this way. Uh, We talked about this a little bit at our Bible study Thursday, if you were there. The Roman rulers uh, considered themselves deities, specifically a few of the Caesars, and they demand to be called Lord. And there came a time under certain rulers where every Roman citizen had to come and pay a tax, and they had to proclaim kaiser Curios, which meant Caesar is Lord. And that was sort of a nod to the Caesar's idea that they were deity in one sense of the word. But Caesar is not Lord. Jesus is Lord. He, He is God, the son of God. He is the one who says he is Lord. But just like there were those who said Caesar is Lord, no doubt just for the purpose of avoiding the Caesar's wrath, There will be those who say Jesus is Lord to avoid the wrath of God, but their lips are not matched by a transformed life. It is not enough to have an empty profession. In the last section, the test was fruit, and and we might ask, well, what is the fruit? If bad fruit was is the deception and and, uh, false teaching and greed and destruction of faith, what is the good fruit? Well, I think in this section, Jesus gives some indication of what good fruit is and isn't. It is doing the will of the Father, and that means so much. We'll touch on that in a minute. But what is interesting to note is what the good fruit is not, necessarily. Verse 22 says, many will say, Lord, did we not prophesy? Did we not cast out demons? Did we not do many mighty works all in your name? And it's interesting because Jesus doesn't say, no, you didn't do those things. He doesn't say that they're lying about the fact that they prophesied and cast out demons and did mighty works. He simply says, I never knew you. I never knew you. There's a warning in that for us as well. a prophecy, a a mighty work, a display of power. There's no guarantee that Christ is in that power, that he is in that prophecy, that he is in that mighty work. Just like in the story of Exodus, the magicians of Egypt could replicate certain of Moses' miracles, uh, the power of darkness is strong. There is easily deception that takes place on many fronts when it comes to mighty works Casting out demons even, prophecies. Does it mean that none of those things are ever true? Of course not. Of course that's not what it means. But what it does mean is much of it is false. Now, the devil is no match for God, but spiritual power and warfare is real. And he does deceive in great ways, which is why the matter of fruit is so important. And the fruit is not necessarily mighty things, big works. The fruit is not necessarily uh, miracles and casting out demons. The fruit is not necessarily simply saying that Jesus is Lord. All of those things can be counterfeited. There's also something else that is so critical in these verses And that is the fact that on that day, on the judgment day, the day of the Lord, as we would think about it, as we read about in the Old Testament, the one who is making the final analysis is Jesus himself. And this is really important because here in Matthew, this is the first time where Jesus, by his own words, sort of begins to show who he really is by his own teaching. He's more than just a teacher. He's more than just a good man. He is Lord, and he will be the one who determines who is and isn't in his kingdom. Those are his words. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. And what does he do? I say to you, depart. And what's the important question? I never knew you. I never knew you. It will be Christ who determines on that day. Not our mighty works. Not our words. The question for these, at least, was not how many miracles did you do, not how many demons did you cast out. The question is, does Jesus know you as one of his own? Now, the word to know is used in an intimate sense. It's not facts, knowledge, like things that we think about, it's not, well, here's a list of 10 things that are true and I know them. Of course, as as Lord and God, Jesus knows everyone in the world and all the facts about them, but not everyone, as he says here, is known by the Lord in this relational sense. At the end of the day, in the final analysis, it all comes down to Jesus. He knows those who do the will, of the Father, That includes the kind of obedience that we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount, but it also includes the rest of what Jesus will teach in the Gospels about transformation and regeneration. Our call is to enter by the narrow way. Then the big question is, what is the narrow way? Is it simply being a moral person? Do we enter the narrow way by simply not murdering or committing adultery or lying? Again, we have to take Jesus teaching here in context of all of his teachings. And he's speaking again, he's speaking to his disciples at the beginning of their journey. He's telling them, it will be hard. It will be different. It will be a narrow way. But what must we do with these things? What must we do with these things? What is the narrow way? Well, Jesus doesn't give the express answer here, although he alludes to it by admitting that he is Lord and he is the one who will say depart or stay on that day. But in many other places, he does give the answer. One of those is in John chapter 10, verse 9, where Jesus says this, I am the door or the sheep gate, as it's sometimes translated. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And we'll go in and out and find pasture. This is one of Jesus' great I am statements where he says, I am literally the gate. Jesus, Jesus says, I am the gate. Enter by me. Another place, maybe even more familiar. Matt read this uh, between songs. Jesus said in John 14, 6 to Thomas, who, who questioned, how can we know the way? Jesus said, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The way that leads to life, sound familiar? It's Jesus. He is the gate. He is the narrow way. Now, what would this have meant in that day? And what does it mean now? It's good to ask these questions. Well, in that day for the people of Israel, it meant that they had to recognize him for who he said he was, who he truly was, the Messiah and the King, the deliverer promised by God and sent from God. But most did not recognize that. Most, it seems, as we have recorded, rejected him. In our day, It it means that we must recognize him as who he says he is, the way to salvation, the way to God the Father, the way to life. For us, it means there isn't any room for for pluralism or, or universalism in Jesus' teachings. He's not the pinnacle at the end of a multitude of ways. He is the way. We must believe that. There's no alternative. There's no room for movement there in Christ's teachings. He is the only way. He is the narrow way. He is the narrow gate. How can we enter the kingdom? How can we enter the narrow gate? Of course, it's through Jesus and through the rest of his teachings and not only what he says, but what he does in the gospels By dying, the sinless one, taking the wrath of God on his account, he begins to show us and make for us that way. You remember what Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3? He was talking there again about the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, and he he told Nicodemus in John 3 that unless you are born again, you can't even see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. He goes on to say, that which is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of spirit is spirit. You must be born again. And in that same chapter, John goes on to record these words, probably some of the most familiar in all the scripture to many. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life the narrow way to life, there it is again. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. There is the broad and narrow way spelled out in different terms. Whoever believes is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. The whole Sermon on the Mount has been showing us that in ourselves, we're inadequate. And we've been called upon to ask, to seek, to to knock. And we're called upon to enter by the narrow gate. Have you entered through the narrow gate? Have you entered through the narrow gate of Jesus Christ? Have you come to him for this life that only he gives, for transformation which only he provides, for righteousness which can satisfy God's demands? Have you entered by the narrow gate of Christ? And a follow-up to that would be this. If you have... Are you depending on him for righteousness each day as you walk the narrow way? Because the narrow gate leads into the narrow way. And it's not easy. It's, not diffi- or it's, it's difficult. It's not automatic. It's, it requires help. Have you entered by the narrow gate of Christ and are you depending on him to give you help so that you can follow him in the way that he's been showing us in the Sermon on the Mount. He is our Lord. He is our Savior. He is our Master. A person cannot drift into the kingdom of God. Even religious activity cannot gain you access. Have you entered by the narrow way of Christ? Lord, uh, the call seems, seems clear. To me, I hope it seems clear to those who need to hear it, and I don't know who needs to hear it in a new and fresh sense. Only you know that. Only you can speak into hearts. Only you can open eyes, give understanding where there was darkness and clouded view. The Lord, I know this. You are the way, the truth, and the life. Thank you for showing us the path thank you for being the gate that men may enter in would you do that work today of drawing people to yourself would you continue to do it Lord would you do it through the ministries the words the love of the people at our church would you uh, would you continue to show that you are the narrow gate and compel people to enter in by it May we follow you as you seek this, and may we do your will, Heavenly Father. We pray this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.